Hey everyone, welcome back to another week of Concessions with me and Jared. This week we are continuing with some of our favorites from the backlog in our conversation on the film Mandy. This was one I knew I wanted to cover with Jared pretty much from the podcast inception since I knew he hadn't seen it yet and this is certainly a film that's primed for a whole slew of different interpretations and responses. You know, make good classic back and forth for a conversational type of podcast like this. If you've been enjoying what we do so far, please feel free to drop a like, review, follow on the podcast, wherever you do your listening. Also, you can find me on X at Dan Concedes, and Jared can be found over at Threads at Jared Concessions. Hit us up and tell us which form of the imagined 80s is your personal favorite. As always, thank you so much for spending some time with us, and we hope you enjoy our chat as we discuss 2018's Mandy. I am Jared and I'm Dan and today we are going to learn about uh, mythical silver Celtic battle axes and Reaganomics in other <laughs> words we're talking about Mandy from 2018 action horror opus written and directed by Panos Cosmatos uh, co-written by Aaron Stewart on and uh, co-written by Casper Kelly who created the Cheddar Goblin commercial, uh, which we'll we'll get into shortly. But first things first, before we talk about the movie, Dan, what are you drinking tonight? What am I drinking tonight? I am hanging out in uh, La Fine du Monde. Our uh, good friends from Quebec uh, made a very tasty beer that's got quite a nice little ABV to it. So that's uh, uh, what I got. It's a big old bottle. It's like a pint, like a big old pint of something, but. It's yummy. It's a classic. Recommend uh, it. Oh, yeah. Sponsor us. The end of the world over there. Uh, I've got the beer of my people. I've got a stone tangerine and pineapple IPA. <laughs> Enjoy by July 4th, 2022. Hmm. Um, it is now February of 2023. And, you know, I don't think that's an actual expiration date. I'm just saying, I, I think that what they're saying is this is a very patriotic beer. Drink it on the 4th of July. Age to um, perfection. It's from my my native North County, San Diego. This beer was brewed uh, mere minutes away by car from Cal State San Marcos, where my older brother went to school and that I briefly wrote about in my, my novel that's coming soon. Uh, grew up just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the old stone brewery. And so I uh, purchased their wares whenever I can. That was definitely one of the first uh, when I was... Fancying myself a connoisseur of beer, the uh, the arrogant bastard was even in uh, gas stations in Tennessee. Yeah, I would say San Diego is sort of the epicenter of well, a lot of earthquakes, but also the the craft beer boom, like Carl Strauss and Stone, uh, where and actually two fine businesses or establishments that I believe you and I have frequented together. Actually, we we I think we've been to both Carl Strauss and Stone together. May, may have dabbled. Um, yeah, now, now every uh, every city, major and minor, and and other towns and communities in between have their own craft brew. Uh, but Stone is a global sensation, from what I understand. Of of people who uh, 
who fancy themselves intellectuals across the world. Yeah. I want to talk a couple of uh, just quick like movie news that I'm, I've, I've seen in the Twitter sphere. Ooh. Uh, apparently, uh, a, an early fan screening of uh, Scream 6 that's coming out in a couple of weeks uh, yielded some plot leaks and uh, some ruffian in the crowd uh, filmed the climactic reveal of who the, the murderer or murderers are and uh, started putting it up all over the internet. So beware. Spoilers for <laughs> Scream 6 are, They're are out there. everywhere. Ooh. They're out there. Yeah. So uh, beware. I haven't had it spoiled for me, even though I spend all day on Twitter. And oh, fingers crossed that I, I can avoid it. Yeah, I, I uh, fortunately, while I've been forced to get Twitter so that I can speak to the good people of this podcast and let them let them know about how I am as as uh, uh, build that parasocial relationship. I purposely not follow people in that are champions of the quote unquote discourse. So I probably will not uh, be running into that. Okay, good. Well, I, I follow anyone who will follow me. So I'll just put that out there. <laughs> Uh, I'm mostly retweeting fun memes, many of which are ones that you have sent me. And I will occasionally use FaceApp to take a sad movie poster and make all the characters smile on the poster, <laughs> thus improving the poster. So you have Edward Norton as uh, skinhead Derek Vineyard in American History X, just smiling his big old toothy skinhead smile on that poster. See, you need to do uh, the opposite, me. and you need to take the poster for smile make them sad oh my goodness i think that would just be too scary <laughs> they're scary enough happy in that movie aren't they i i kind of didn't bother watching it it just i at some point i'll probably catch it. i think it's on paramount plus or something like that but it uh it just seemed like a spooky jump fest and i am uh very frail when it comes to jumping you know i would say that movie didn't have the same volume of jump scares as your typical like James Wan conjuring universe or insidious type of movie. Uh, it did have one extraordinarily effective jump scare that got me <laughs> a connoisseur of, of boo scares. Um, but yeah, smile was okay. It was like my eighth favorite horror movie last year. So, yeah. It's kind uh, of I, what I thought. Like it was like, I missed it while I was in theaters and I'm like, eh, so it goes. So it goes. You'll have plenty of opportunities to not watch it moving forward now <laughs> that it's on Paramount Plus. To take advantage of that opportunity tonight and not watch it tonight. What a coincidence. I'm also not going to be watching wow. Smile tonight or any other nights. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Uh, I'm Tonight I might watch We're All Going to the World's Fair. I've heard that's good. Or uh, I might watch this movie called Swallowed. Um, or I might watch The Outwaters again because it's premiering uh, on, I think, Screambox tonight. Well, I think, um, I think I've seen Swallowed, but it was on a website that wasn't Netflix. <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, I think you're thinking of Deep Throat. <laughs> Famous Watergate informant yeah, and that's exactly film. precisely what I was actually referencing. Wait, which came first? I, I Watergate informant named after the porno or is the porno named after the Watergate informant? Because I like either one of those scenarios, but I refuse to believe that they're unrelated. One of them had to have been referencing the other, right? Well, I mean, this is like pre-internet rule 34 stuff where if something exists, it, there's porn of it somewhere. 
let's see. So I guess that's how you know we'll have made it um, if, if we uh, if people start going on deviant art and making pictures of us making out. That's how you know that we've truly made it. Okay, okay. So <laughs> I I I I googled deep throat. I I should have binged it with the safe search turned off. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, so it turns out that the movie Deep Throat was a cultural phenomenon in early 1972. So later in 1972, when the Watergate scandal was at full bore, Mark Felt, uh, I think he was a former director of the FBI or something like that, uh, he he chose that name, Deep Throat, <laughs> Come on, uh, based on the title of the popular pornographic film of the same year. <laughs> Life imitates art, I suppose. Um, speaking of the seventies and eighties, have you heard of this movie, Mandy? From I have heard ago? of Mandy. What did you think of Mandy? I uh, love Mandy. I remember watching it. Uh, I was kind of a little bit behind on the hype about it. I think by the time we got to streaming, I had seen it just at my apartment at the time. But I've seen it like three, four times since then because it's it's definitely the number one movie for like you got a buddy over or something and they're like you want to watch some weird freak shit hmm here's mandy see how you like this one yeah weird freak shit but with a real pulse like that'll <laughs> like, like very entertaining freak shit oh yeah right? at least by the by the end this the second hour is very very blood-soaked and entertaining it is yeah it's it a while like, to get there you know those like i don't know like a tool song or something where um it's like nine minutes long and you, you play it for your friends like I, I swear it gets good just 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 wait yeah. just wait you gotta I, I, I gotta trust me like you don't understand how good tool is <laughs> the, the screenplay of mandy's based on the fibonacci sequence just like <laughs> the lateralis album i promise you man why don't you believe me that the tool's the best band in the world it's like, actually really have deep if you think about it mandy i'll, I'll put I'll, i'm gonna throw this out there mandy is a better movie than tool is a band <laughs> I definitely I have uh, I have a lot of love for Tool because I, I grew up on them. But um, I can kind of like with Mandy, I can totally see why people take one look at it and they're already exhausted by it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of pre preconceptions about the movie just based on the poster and, uh, you know, the, the reputation that it has with with Nick Cage's performance. For, for me, Mandy's a movie that I've known ever since it came out you know, almost five years ago now um, that it was a movie for me. I don't know how or why I, I avoided seeing it for five years, but it was always one of those movies that everyone who knows my taste, everyone that knows my sense of humor, everyone that knows the kind of movies that I like, every, they, they all say I need to see Mandy. And I think at a certain point, I knew that to such an extent that I was actively avoiding it. Yeah, because <laughs> it like, really took when you know, like when you feel like a movie is going to just immediately get into your bones and be one of your favorites. Like, OK, I need to like give this movie the proper environment to fully hit me. I need to be in the, the exact right mood with the exact right environment. And I need this thing to work. Yeah. And, and for me, for me, it worked a lot. I, uh, I had a, uh, a lot of love for this movie. Uh, I really loved how the first half is really, really um, contemplative or contemplative. Never know how to pronounce that word. <laughs> and it's sort of languorous. Uh, it kind of takes its time. It's like really vibrant from the beginning. All of the super psychedelic colors and the pulsating lights and the really menacing score 
they're there from the very beginning. And like, that's sort of the icon iconography of the movie, right. That you see, and even in the posters and in the trailers. And I was, I was pretty pleasantly surprised to see just how that starts right from the beginning. Like even while Mandy and red are having these tender private moments together that are, you know, they're, they're very, very intimate, but the score is still like, you know, the hallway scene in Inception while like the <laughs> lights, you know, we got like the rave lighting going and, you know, very, very psychedelic. And uh, every, everyone's uh, pupils are <laughs> extremely dilated through the entire movie. Yeah, One so of the first I actually, things I noticed. I specifically looked that up. The actress uh, that plays Mandy, her, I, I was even wondering coming out of that movie, I don't know if you noticed that one of her eyes would be dilated, not both. Um, that's not the actress. They did that deliberately. Yeah, I mean, I, I think every character's eyes are 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 dilated through the whole movie, regardless of whether or not they're on psychedelics in the plot or not. Right. Um, there's a certain point in the movie where I think everyone is on psychedelics, or multiple points in the movie. But even <laughs> when they're not, I feel like uh, their eye, their pupils are just gigantic. Let's, uh, speaking of plot, uh, would you? care to bless us with a quick plot recap absolutely so the movie's named mandy the, the main character in the at least in the first half of the movie is is mandy so she's a she's a a woman who lives really peacefully out in the the mountains or the woods or or the lake uh in the pacific northwest in a uh by a fictional lake from this movie and others called crystal lake in uh i think the red mountains is what they say and uh, she's an artist. She is a a, a lover of fantasy shadow literature Mountain, by the way. and the Shadow Mountains. So her and Red live in the Shadow Mountains. They listen to a lot of heavy metal together. They discuss their traumas and uh, the, the things in their lives that have broken them. She she's an artist. She she reads fantasy lit prolifically, and uh, she's she's just enjoying her peaceful existence. You know, healing with her her boyfriend Red. Who uh, we don't learn a whole lot about uh, at the beginning, other than he's he's very in love with her and he's very att attentive to her needs and to her her uh, the way she expresses herself. She's walking home one day. She unknowingly attracts the attention of uh, a man named Jeremiah Sand, who is this Charles Manson like cult leader, who is also a failed folk musician like uh, Charles Manson and uh, does a lot of LSD like Charles Manson and kills people like Charles Manson. Uh, and he has um, uh, a partnership or some kind of ties to this horrific uh, sadomasochistic cannibalistic biker gang. And uh, basically all of those characters have a really uh, disturbing run in. And afterwards uh, red goes on a absolute, odyssey of rage and revenge <laughs> where he's covered in blood and vodka and acid for the rest of the movie <laughs> yeah that's um fortunately the plot is quite easy to explain um and it's yeah. it's by design i would say that um he he keeps the plot super spare like surprisingly straightforward i remember my first viewing like i was looking for more in the plot and you know, it just wound up being that simple, like essentially like a pulp novels plot, because by doing that, by retreading all these tropes that we've seen over and over again from the 70s and 80s in particular, like he can then start commenting on other things because we're so used to this plot. Yeah, I mean, we see it in I mean, there's there's a whole revenge genre of movies that runs the gamut from 
horror films like The Last House on the Left, or I think even more uh, closely related to this film, something like I Spit on Your Grave. But you also see it, you know, like every Charles Bronson movie. I think Mel Gibson had a movie that was just called Payback that had a similar plot, uh, a movie that was re-released just this week uh, after Titanic. 20, 20, no, no, no. <laughs> very, very similar movie called Irreversible by uh, Gaspar. Oh, no, whoa, uh, was re- no. re-released in theaters to d- this this week, uh, twenty twenty one years after its release, in a uh, in a new format where he he recut it in chronological order, so it no longer does the memento thing where it plays back huh. plays backwards. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't Irreversible episode, but huh is all I have to say about that movie. Anyway, uh, Irreversible in this movie have a very similar conceit, um, as do many, many movies. You see it in Kill Bill, Old Boy uh, by Park Chan-wook. It, you know, it's a very, very, very well-worn conceit, but this movie mutates it into something very new uh, by focusing on the characters, by building them out in ways that are surprising and and satisfying and the way they interact with each other is always very surprising and satisfying but he he takes that basic type of movie and wraps it in this cosmic horror aesthetic with just absolutely like pitch perfect performances from the three leads i'd be nicholas cage as red uh andrea uh, riseborough currently best best actress nominee at the oscars this year uh as mandy and then linus roach as as jeremiah sand and the three of them and their interactions i think or, or what kind of set this movie apart and, and kind of make the plot work, even if the plot itself is very, very basic or very straightforward, like you were saying. Yeah. And yeah, and that, that leads us into like the basic, I mean, we've kind of already alluded to it. It's like, what things did we like about it? And uh, for, for me, the main thing I liked is because the plot is so spare and because it's something that we, we know so well uh, Cosmatos is kind of, he's using that to then comment on the form, to comment on uh, on things outside of the plot. So it's sort of a, for, for the lack of the fancy liberal arts term, it's a meta commentary of things. I, I think particularly what I saw is like the 80s, the 80s as an idea um, in that, uh, in an interview I saw from him. So he, he was commenting on the sort of, lack of temporality that we exist in the internet age where like we're in the perpetual now all the time all time is kind of like different eras have kind of all collapsed on top of each other and it no longer has it's no longer tied to its particular time and place and culture anymore and he says uh time has no meaning anymore people can choose a time period like they're choosing a color so to him it's just in this like it's this hollow aesthetic choice that you can choose and and you can tell it's like it's so dialed up to like 11 12 13 even these 70s and 80s aesthetics that yeah it's rendering it a like grotesque and absurd um so it, it's kind of by making it especially uh i don't want to say ridiculous but yeah grotesque uh, someone keep a, a counter on how many times i use that word today he's pointing out the artificiality of the way that we view the 80s and the filter of people from 2018 looking back at a time especially in 2018 we're still kind of in it right now in 2023 i'd say we're on the back end uh, but in 2018 especially we were at the height of 80s nostalgia wave um i mean 
The Star Wars movies are coming back out. You got Stranger Things is the biggest thing on the planet. Oh, I'm sure there's a ton of other stuff that it's just leaving my mind. Ghost, the, you know, uh, you got the new Ghostbusters is coming yeah, out. It, um, uh, it very, it, oh yeah, it's one of the, uh, the yeah. highest grossing R-rated movie ever. Yeah, it, very, like, very much wrapped in 80s it. nostalgia uh, and, and deliberately updated from the 1950s nostalgia of the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, um, and you know, there is, there's something, it's, it's, it's something that's been noticed in film criticism that like, you know, filmmakers, especially big established filmmakers, they're going to be people probably they're, they're a little older because, you know, they've to get there, you've had to be in the business for a while. So they're going to start commenting on their childhood. So you're naturally going to see nostalgia from about 20, 30 years beforehand when it's uh, artists commenting on their own childhood. But the 80s one to me feels particularly interesting in especially in 2018 when we're when we're seeing this sort of chickens come home to roost in that era um, of the forces and, and all the things of the eighties, like the, the deregulation of uh, Reaganomics uh, in the UK Thatcher and like just the, the general new form of what we call today, late capitalism. I would, it's very, a lot of historians and econ or economists, economists, is that the word? Yeah. Economists point to the seventies and eighties as when this deregulation happened and what like profound effects that we're still reeling with today are occurring. And so when you see all these 80s nostalgia, it's like very glossy. It's very J.J. Abrams. It's very Steven Spielberg. And it shows this like innocent, youthful time of, of you know, happy kids on bikes that are def defeating aliens and stuff like that, where it's like they're always on bikes, always on bikes. Um, love bicycles back then. Still love bikes. But it, I think Mandy is sort of, whether it's conscious or not, it's a response to that. Um, it's saying, like, sure, maybe things in the 80s in a contained way were still good. Like, you know, the middle class still pretty much existed and people could, eh, for the most part, make their living. But, like, this is the beginning of the end of the, the, the reckoning that we're all dealing in right now. Um, so we need to look back at kind of the source of what sort of attitudes and what sort of social forces existed at that time and uh, really reckon with those sorts of dynamics. I know that sound. Do we need to pause? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of beer. Damn. I don't know, get get a Balenciaga bag and I can be Patrick Bateman. Oh, wow. That's like a very apt reference to an, another movie that... Does the same uh, thing. That, well, uh, that certainly consciously does the same thing where you, you might make the argument that Mandy, you know, is just a, pro is a product of nostalgia in its own twisted way. You know, because, I mean, Mandy could be a number of things. It could be young impressionable preteen panos uh you know hanging out on his dad's film sets like rambo 2 tombstone is another one he directed that's from the very early 90s i think uh or it could just be that he loves 80s movies and he loves the aesthetic and he loves the uh the heavy metal from the time and he loves the slashers from the time or yeah, it's, maybe it's a combination of both and i would say that yeah that is that is a very important thing about mandy that um keeps it from being mean-spirited is I think Mandy loves 80s. It loves those tropes. Uh, where American Psycho 
has no time for the 80s whatsoever. It, it no. hates everyone and everything in that movie. 100%, yeah. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis himself, who wrote the novel, Mary Heron, who uh, who directed the movie, and uh, I'm forgetting off the top of my head the name of the the other woman who, who wrote the screenplay along with Mary Heron. Uh, yeah, just utter contempt for those people, and you know, rightfully so. Yeah, rightfully so, and just a complete just barrel ahead and just skewer that entire uh, point of view from from those 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 rich men in the '80s. Let's talk a little bit more about how that how that manifests in in Mandy, because yeah. you've got these two characters. This this cult leader who kind of uses his Jesus freak status to warp his own delusions of grandeur and a sense of entitlement. When he sees this lovely young lady, Mandy, he feels entitled to her. Like he feels like he has to possess her. Is is what um, the filmmakers have said about about that moment. Just he just feels like he ought to possess her. Like he he deserves to. And uh, Red, on the other hand, he is. Uh, the, the rather the opposite. So uh, I know you wrote um, some specific things about how the how the characters of Jeremiah and how the characters of Red sort of are on opposite ends of a spectrum of of masculinity as it pertains to their status as '80s throwbacks. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So uh, something that's interesting is that that's a very well worn trope of revenge thrillers is the you, we're not so different, you and I. See, well, these two are they are completely different, and it's. So it's contrasted so clearly. And I think the way that it's clearly contrasted is their relationship to Mandy. She's the focal point that uh, in an interesting way, it's kind of like a flip where um, she is kind of made the center point of the film and the male characters have to relate to her, which is kind of a nice Mm -hmm. uh, flipping on the head of a lot of older revenge fantasy movies where, you know, you have some misogynist tropes of like the women are just kind of these uh, MacGuffins essentially. Yeah. They're, they're the MacGuffin cannon fodders and the way that the, 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 you know, villain and heroes relate to her uh, or, or how she relates to them and kind of what they get out of harming her or avenging her is more important. And this movie is different. This movie is called Mandy. We spend the first entire hour of the movie getting to know her very well, getting to know what she listens to, what she reads. She quotes from those things to us. We learn about her job and her art and her uh, uh, her childhood traumas. And it's all capped off by Jeremiah Sand playing his terrible <laughs> folk music. That's so bad. Uh, and her laughing in his face about it for minutes on end while he screams at her to stop knowing that it will likely mean her demise and she just laughs in his fucking face and uh <laughs> wonderful it's um, like it's an amazing scene a, a great little uh side bit i was listening to an interview with uh linus roche i'm gonna say that's how you say his last name where when he was hired for that first off that uh the 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 role of Jeremiah Sand was supposed to be for Nick Cage. It was written with him yeah. in mind. And you can see that in the dialogue. It's some turned up to 11 wackadoo dialogue that Nick Cage probably would have killed. But originally, he was supposed to... There, there's a scene, that scene where he plays his music, and it's kind of his final moment before he uh, decides to expose his uh, flaccid little wiener at her. 
so that was in the script originally and uh the real linus roach is like i don't know like we'll see how that like i, I don't know about that one cosmetos is like oh we'll just we'll see how we feel when we get there and eventually he's okay with that uh the, the line he would not cross though is in the script he was supposed to start stroking himself off too <laughs> oh which, which you know yeah just showing your dong got the point across uh where it would have been it would have been uh wouldn't have been opposed to a little little strokage um I think the message was sent. So, so that begs the question: Had had uh, Cosmatos not had that change of heart, and you know, had, had Cage kind of agreed to play that role, and I, I would guess there was probably a, a discussion, and, and Cage was probably the one that actually decided he wanted to play Red and not Jeremiah. I would guess uh, he probably had more more power in that I dynamic. Think that was the case. I can't remember specifically. Would, so, well, the question is then: did, Was the world robbed of Cage Dung? Oh, oh, maybe. Have we seen Nick? 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 I don't know if we've seen Cage Dong before. I've seen a lot of Cage movies, and he strikes me as the type of guy where if the role called for it and it was important to the story, the way it is in this movie, very important to the characterization and the themes and the plot, he would have hung Dong because that's who Nick Cage is. Like he's he's serious about inhabiting his roles, but we we were robbed of it here for. Linus Roach's flaccid dung. I have just for the people on my own work laptop looked up Nicolas Cage nude on Google okay. and it's there, folks. Oh, okay. Look it up. What movie? What movie? Uh, or is it just, or is it just uh, please, please don't tell me you like looked up his, uh, his iCloud leaks. No, it looks like him in a movie. Oh, I'm at a website that I just don't need to be in. So I'm, I'm going to. You're on your VPN right now. <laughs> this episode brought to you by NordVPN. Uh, I need a job now as a result of not using NordVPN. Um, no, I will. I will research that further. But it was just him looking sad in a t-shirt without pants. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, it wasn't sexy dong. It was. It was sad dong. Um, oh, okay. But anyway, so he could have he could have hung sad dong in this movie because it was sad dong in this movie. Yeah, it would have been sad in a different sense of the word. Um, but yeah, going back to uh, the the characters in the movie and how it, it expands on the themes, uh, uh, you know, we will we will leave the dicks for now. Uh, we'll put it on a shelf. But this is a pro dick podcast. Oh yes, uh, we we are supportive of dicks of all shapes, sizes, and genders here at the concessions. But we. Uh, it shows, you know, two different kinds of male ego where and I think I put it, I put it in, I don't want to misquote the guy. Oh, yeah. So Joseph Campbell, the guy who does, you know, the hero's journey and all the archetypes, that dude, he had a quote that said, the psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. So I think that's a, a really apt quote that I actually pulled from another podcast. So I'll. Uh, horror vanguard I'll, I'll say that's all them but um it, it shows that while they're in the same they're swimming in the same waters of this altered gnarled version of the 80s like one of them because of their own uh sp spiritual for a lack of a better word their fortitude in the sense that they are not living solely for themselves or egoistic they can they can navigate this like this hellscape where the other one uh, the moment that the the crushing reality comes down on him that he's actually just a weak, frail person just like everyone else, 
he buckles and he drowns essentially in a great final scene yeah yeah uh we're going i mean this is full spoilers right i mean we've already been kind of spoiling the hell out of the movie and yeah also we've been swearing so uh sorry this is, uh, this is an r-rated version of, of concessions <laughs> for an r-rated movie but one of the best moments of this whole movie is nicholas cage as red has jeremiah sand's head in his hands he's got all of the power and jeremiah sand his first tactic is being like you can't do this like i'm like i'm b- bigger than you i'm better than you i own you like you know, going off on like his his entire you know toxic tangent. I am like, God incarnate. I'm God incarnate, much. and you're you're scum. You're nothing. To like realizing all at once that he doesn't actually have the power. Red has all the power, literally in his his head in his hands, and changes tactic to I'll suck your dick. Is that what you want? You want me to suck your dick? I'll suck, I'll your, suck dick your dick. You let me live, man. I'll suck your dick, man. Like he just like completely sheds his entire uh, persona and the character that he had been playing. <laughs> it a, a great acting in that scene too. You can oh just see God. him going through the rollo decks of every power move he could possibly pull yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, and that's a like, uh, dis- like as an actor, like deciding what your tactics are in any given scene. If it's in, like an aggressive tactic, or if it's a uh, a more like a, a kind of a dominating tactic or a submissive tactic, uh, th- that's that's like acting one hundred and one. That's like Stanislavski and Udo Hagen you know, writing about like, what is your tactic in any given scene? And the way he just cycles through so many of them in that like minute and a half that he's begging for his life is fantastic theater school stuff. Oh, it's amazing. This, this movie does have, I mean, this movie is certainly campy in, in some very interesting ways. Of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll talk about just the, the extent to which this movie references eighties, seventies, eighties and nineties movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the camp in this movie is dialed all the way up and it, it's perfect for Nick Cage to improvise his way through some scenes where the camp gets dialed up even more and, and his his uh, talents get relied on even more. But one thing I want to talk about before we get into the specifics around Nick Cage is I want to talk about my very favorite thing about this movie, and that is the world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie has far more world building in it than it needed to have. I would push uh, back. I think it needed all of it. Well, we'll talk about that more. And we'll, we'll talk about why this movie has so much more world building than other movies of this type. Because this movie has the type of movie or world building that you see in like a space opera. Like it has the type of world building you would have in like Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, or, it's, it's or, kind of like the book she's reading. It's a dark fantasy. It's got to be this own insular world. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's just so much of it. So, like for instance, Jeremiah Sand plays a song for Mandy to I don't know try to impress her, convince convince her that he's a prophet or something. Uh, he pulled he pulled his Charles Manson card and pulled out his folk album and and put it on. You think uh, Jeremiah and, Sand would have played Wonderwall in the '90s at bonfires? Uh, no, he would have played a song he wrote that <laughs> sounds sounds remarkably like Wonderwall. <laughs> Probably. Um, but he uh, he he plays the song, but the what actually exists is an entire Jeremiah Sand album that you can find on Spotify, as well as the single that they actually play in this movie. And uh, they didn't have to do that, but Linus Roach wanted to, and apparently Cosmatos wanted to, and their their musical cohorts wanted to, so they did it. Uh, and the whole album was released two years after the movie, so they really didn't have really. To. Oh, I thought it. Yeah. I figured it came along with it as like a promotional thing. Uh, the, the the song that appears in the movie did, but they went uh, far like long after this movie had had 
had ended production or after it had been released, we got an entire Jeremiah Sand album. Cosmatos created an entire fictional novel by a fictional author. I think her name is Lenora Tor is the name of the author that he made up. And, and her book, Seeker of the Serpent's Eye, is this like fantasy kind of sword and sorcery novel that also has like cosmic horror elements to it like this movie does. And Mandy reads it. She quotes from it. Uh, we got to talk about <laughs> we got to talk about Goblin Goblin oh, mac and cheese. Hail the cheddar goblin. Cheddar goblin. Yeah. I mean they they made this absurdly comical mac and cheese commercial that that distracts Red moments after the love of his life has oh. been murdered and he has decided to go on a rage-filled killing spree. Can I He's, he stops to watch this commercial. Can I attempt to big brain what the cheddar goblin's yeah. doing? In this movie? Yeah. Let, let's 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 talk about cheddar goblin but I'll just like finish that this movie oh, yeah. like has locations that have specific names that are made up for the movie. The, the groups of people like the, the cult and the biker gang, they have their own names. The drugs that were invented for the movie have their own names. The the weapons that Nick Cage uses, his crossbow has a name that's escaping my, me right now, but his big battle axe is called the Beast. And you can buy that, by the way. It's only $300. We found it online. You can buy a recreate, full-size recreation of that thing. Um, but yeah, everything like the the ocarina that they play to summon the biker band. It has a name. I think it was like the horn of a Braxis or something like that. Every every element of this movie that like they all have backstories and proper names and like any of that stuff just could have been pulled from the real world, right? But well, instead, also, they created this entire like reflection of the real world. Because yeah, we're saying this is set in the Pacific Northwest, but like they never actually say where they are. This is like a, this is an alternate, uh, what I, Pacific Northwest, like it was shot up there, that's for sure, but they never actually set this in a spot. I mean, it's almost kind of like the, uh, like Twin Peaks, where it's like, well, this is the Northwest, but like this, none of this actually is there. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, like it, it's all made, it's a whole made up world. Like, is there even anything that specifically says that they're on Earth? Well, there's, and I, I kind of got into it too. There's one piece of what we could call historical reality that comes in, and it's at the very beginning oh, of the yeah, movie. That's right. And it's, uh, you know, Red is coming back from work. He's in, you know, your John Everyman pickup truck heading back to Mandy, and he's got the radio on, and uh, it's 19, and it, it after this speech, it explicitly says it's 1983. That's one of the few pieces of solid grounding that we get. But because it's 1983, he's listening to the radio, and the, there's a speech from the president. It's Ronald Reagan at the time, and he's giving this fucking fascist-ass uh, speech about this new moral majority that uh, does not approve of the this degeneracy of American culture that we have uh, suffered through, which it's like, this is just textbook stuff that has been said for, by authoritarians for years. Uh, and then you see him, like, he's in the middle of this tirade about that, and you see Red just like, bop, like, smash it off. He doesn't just turn it off. He's like, he turns off in his way. He's like, I've had enough of this. And that's the only piece of historical grounding that we get through the entire movie. So, like, it it has to be significant. That's the only thing that he chooses to put in. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and you, you cover it really beautifully in your essay, uh, like the why behind that. And I, I feel like you want a big brain, something about cheddar goblin that oh, will also tell so those it goes, in, so, it goes into the cheddar goblin. Actually, these two pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me this. Why is it that red uh, turns off the, the, the disgusting uh, Reagan speech when, 
you know, it's on the radio in his truck. He, he, his his alternative is silence, and he chooses silence. But why why is it that he won't listen to that, but he'll sit and watch the entire Cheddar Goblin commercial during the worst moment of his life? So the 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 80s reagan speech i think serves it it serves kind of in not in contrast but it serves to work with the cheddar goblin thing so the reagan speech is a real speech it's actually something that he said it's like there's not supposed to be there's no hyperbole to it there's nothing that's ratcheted up this is just dry history that's being put into this uh you know fantastic world and it's to and i think it works to highlight that like this sort of rhetoric is absurd. It is nonsensical. It is actually not tied to the material reality of people in the 80s. But, you know, like with most rhetoric that uh, aims to subjugate people, it doesn't reflect the real world. So it fits in very well with this world that is absurd. And then that, that ties into the Cheddar Goblin thing, where I think there's a reason why the cheddar goblin commercial which it's it's a macaroni and cheese commercial like craft mac and cheese essentially um and it's just like this it's got all the aesthetics of like your hokey glossy you know random ad that you'd see at 3 p.m on a wednesday growing up um except it's horrifying like the cheddar goblin i, I think what was it i think I, I heard the the combination so the cheddar goblin barfs like yeah. weird gelatinous orange goop all over the children and they're cheering for it because it's you know yeah they can't get enough of it it was something like fago and sand or something i can't remember what the combination was it was something really gross oh uh, i got it from the gathering of the juggalos <laughs> uh but it, it shows so red this scene happens immediately after the death of man well mandy dies in a like going out in the most horrific way and uh red has to sit there and just watch it there's nothing he can do um and he gets out and he's back in his house and he's you know he just experienced something that completely shatters your own sense of reality or meaning or just generally the way that you even perceive yourself like all that is broken and then this stupid banal offensive to your own intellect commercial comes on and what I think it does is it shows like, you know, have you ever had something that's like so awful that happens to you or something that you just, you hope you never have to deal with and it, and it happens. And, but then all of a sudden, like nothing, everything's absurd all of a sudden, like all everything, yeah. like all the social contracts, all the things that you're used to, like the, the mm -hmm. rules of the game that you've been playing, like it's rendered ridiculous. Like working a job feels stupid. Um, Keeping up with right. it, it, your it, your neighbor in there, they're yeah. trifling. It, it seems pointless. It seems pointless, and the fact that the world is still spinning in that way is becomes offensive. Yeah, and so like, he that commercial kind of forced Nick Cage with a choice, and it's a choice that that happens to all of us in such moments. Like you can either come back, you can settle in to this this eighties that you currently exist in of just bland milk toast consumerism and keeping up with the Joneses and trying to get your money at the expense of the other guy, or you can violently rupture that you can act upon it and you can go throw on some aviators and go Smith yourself a Celtic silver battle ax and go fight some demons with a chainsaw. And yeah, of course one of them is easier. That's for sure. 
Uh, and the other one marks you essentially for death or at least ostracization. But uh, one of them, the movie, I think, argues one of them proves his purity of heart more than the other one. Yeah, yeah, he he certainly goes to incredible lengths to prove that. Well, and, and it's not proving anything. Like, it, it seems like, uh, especially because that, I forget, does he, is the vodka scene right after that or right before that? I think it's before. So I think I think he kind of wakes up from his shock of what what has happened. He goes in and he he's in his like his underwear and his his shirt and he just he pugs a uh you know a, a whole like liter of vodka and just has like a very real emotional Ooh, breakdown yeah. of grief and rage and uh Nicolas Cage is just uh the master at at injecting truth into nightmare, you know, yeah, dialed up to 11 scenarios. Cause like, what are you actually going to do in that? Like, even though that's, that's turned up to 11, like, of course, like that's, that's uh he's, he's turning it up a little bit higher than, you know, what would be an actual, I don't know if there's like a documentary of this to happen. Like, of course someone would be enraged, but it does, it does push back against, I would say like a normal uh, Hollywood fair of, um, you know, the the tragic happens and and you see the the stoic masculine hero finally shed a, a single tear and and right. maybe like well up a little bit and then well, uh, now he's got the steely resolve to to do what he needs to be done it's like no like that's that was one of the most earth shattering things that could possibly ha happen it's almost incomprehensible the amount right. of trauma and, that he just and, and it is incomprehensible and but somehow uh Nicolas Cage comprehends it and shares it with us. Well, and that's what the whole movie does really well by by being campy, by being turned up a little bit. Like the colors are notched up too high. The the music is over dramatic. Like everything is a little like is of course yeah. rendered a little ridiculous because it's like this is a incomprehensible situation. This is how I would feel to be in this kind of like this world where um, your regular reality and the order of things in your everyday life has just been so torn asunder that like, yeah, all this shit may as well be happening. That's how it feels to be in that, that kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hopefully we never get to find out if I was like, if, not if speaking from experience or not, by the way. Right. Yeah. This is not, not happened to you IRL. But it's more um, evocative of that than like, I don't know, I'm thinking like uh, of Taken, where it's like Liam Neeson, his daughter gets takeified, and he's just like, oh, I am badass, and I will, I will exact my revenge. Uh, watch out, bitches. Where it's like, no, I would be devastated if that happened. Like, yeah. I wouldn't just be some like businessman and like throw on my suit and jacket and get to work. Like, I would be emotionally crushed by that. Of course, yeah, and that should be uh, part of it. Uh, you know what I really love is how his like the way that his rage around his grief manifests in small ways, or or like rea his reactions to relatively small things are amplified. And I think this is a real thing that happens. I'm like <laughs> thinking back to times ah, where the I have, I, yeah, of course, that's what I'm going to mention. So, like, I think back on times where, where I'm experiencing really unexpected grief and how every little tiny thing will set me off, right? 
Um, I think the Cheddar Goblin thing actually makes sense as well because I think it makes sense to want to look for distractions, even if it's subconscious. Like I could imagine wanting to just watch a stupid commercial yeah, in that moment. You know, I've been stressed it's better, than, it's better than the reality, right? There have been times but, where being super stressed out or being upset by something, like you just fall into just mindless TV or something. Right. But I, I love how when he's when he goes to uh to fight the biker gang and uh is he gets captured by them, he breaks out, he's having these you know, knock knock down, drag out fights with all the individual members. He, he has a chainsaw duel with one. He fights one with his crossbow and his battle axe. He just fights one, just totally hand to hand. And uh, one of at some point, or actually, it happens more than once, where like they're t- well, at one point they're tying him up, I think, with barbed wire, and like they poke a hole in his shirt, and he's like, "That's my favorite shirt." <laughs> And like it's just like so absurd, but it, it makes so much sense to me that this like the small things would be setting him off during this life and death scenario. But then later when he's fighting that same person, he's like he finally gets the upper hand and he's like he's like beating them down and he's like he's like, You tore my shirt, you messed up my shirt. And it's like the best thing. It's like my favorite moment of the whole movie. It's the only thing he can concretely point to. Like he can't say like I am exacting my revenge upon you for this, you know, long, all these long standing grievances and this deep wound that I can't even express to you. It's like, you tore my fucking shirt. Yeah. He just, he says it in like a way that like a human being wouldn't like in any sort of normal surf, like you tore my shirt. And, uh, <laughs> oh my God. And he, uh, I, I saw this interview where he reveals that, that was improvised where like they, where he just did a very actorly thing, very like Brando thing, very like Stanislavski or Strasberg type of thing where he was living truthfully in these imagined circumstances, but using the reality of what he, the actor was experiencing and commenting on it like a good actor will do sometimes. And yeah, during, during when they were filming that stunt, his shirt got ripped and it was just in his heart to react that way. Like you ripped my shirt. You tore my shirt and they kept it. And uh, he's very proud of it. Like he talks about it in several interviews uh, Mm. around the time that this debuted at Sundance. And uh, it's my favorite moment of his performance. And I'm glad that uh, he, he singled it out himself as a favorite moment that he he, he improvised that. This actually leads me to uh, something that we have different experiences on and it's Nick Cage, the meme for uh, when it comes to his performances, because right, yeah, Man- Mandy for me when I watched it at, at this point in Nick Cage's career, at least, and in-, in my understanding of like film culture in general, I was much later to the game. Um, he w- for me, he was kind of written off. Like he's just this schlocky actor that does, mm-hmm. you know, that is just over the top and it it's too much and it's kind of silly and it distracts from the movie. And then I watch Mandy and it's like, oh, they, they found a movie where this shtick works. And I still found it that way when I saw it in like 2019. That's like, oh, they, they you know, they, they molded a movie around Nick Cage's shtick. Right. And now I feel embarrassed about that opinion because now in 2023, like I actually deeply respect what he was doing in Mandy and what he's been doing his entire career which is like really taking bold, big swings at the craft of acting in mainstream Hollywood, which like, I don't know if there's really anyone doing what he's doing. And yeah, sometimes it's going to miss. It's going to be a little silly and off the mark, but like 
he's he's pushing uh, the craft in in what I would say is a good direction. Yeah, and and what he's doing, you know, like let's be clear, like his style is not not something that he created, not something he invented. Like he even I didn't didn't he call himself California Klaus Kinski? Yeah, <laughs> like and that's like an apt comparison, right? Like that sort like the sort of actor that takes in all of the various kind of schools of performance, like the naturalism, but as well as the like surrealism, the, uh, you know, like you were saying, he channels Kabuki theater in this. He's a student of, of literature and of the craft of acting. And he really goes for it. Like, you know, it, it's gonna, it's, it's hard to say this without like coming across as like holier than thou or like kind of, uh, uh, you know, a know-it-all, but, you know, like, like the, I, I spent years in acting school. Like I, I've, I've been around a lot of actors that really go ape shit like this in the, in the theater world, it's more, way more prominent than it is in the film world where a lot of it is like, you know, modeling. <laughs> uh, Nick Cage is not a model. He's an actor and he, he like really, really goes for a lot of big choices, which, in, in the theater, you know, that sort of thing is celebrated, I would say, more more frequently, especially with more avant-garde stuff. But he takes that sort of play, that playfulness and that that exploration of his entire body, his entire voice, his entire state of being, and the intellectual curiosity of understanding a character, and he fucking goes for it. And uh you're you're right, like when when you pointed out that like a lot of people have some respect for him, but it's wrapped in a, a layer of irony or, you know, they like, like the meme, they like kind of making fun of him. Uh, yeah. It, it's bullshit. Like, and for me, Mandy is the, the movie that kind of was that turning point towards a lot of people starting to respect him more again. I like, let, let's, was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's take a look at his, his career. So like he started off in the early eighties with like a couple bit parts, like, essentially like an extra in fast times at Ridgemont high and Valley girl and rumble fish. And uh, that's when he was still going by Nicholas Coppola. He decided right around that time in his, in his like early twenties that he was going to shed the name Coppola. He didn't want to like be the Nepo baby. He wanted to be a serious actor. So he, he gave himself his new name, Nicholas cage. And he, for a while, he was he was coast, he coasted along for a couple years in sort of these romantic comedies where they were you know unsubstantial, but his performances were well regarded until he encountered the Coens in Raising Arizona and uh, put in you know an incredible performance in that movie. Uh, and then that exact same year, he was in Moonstruck by John Patrick Shanley, who if you've never encountered John Patrick Shanley's work, he uh, he wrote and directed the movie Doubt with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, based on his own Pulitzer prize winning and Tony award winning play, but his plays <sighs> Must all be nice. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but his, his plays are, uh, are fantastic. And Nicholas Cage is a great, great kind of a, the, the type of actor that would have been in John Patrick Shanley's plays in the eighties. John Turturro got his start acting in John Patrick Shanley's huh, work as that. another example, but Nicholas Cage did Moonstruck with Cher in 1987 amazing performance then he was in vampire's kiss uh which was kind of the big meme meme yeah. original Nick a meme. b c d yeah, yeah right right but uh he he kept doing like really serious roles like he was in david lynch's wild at heart soon after that 
uh, and then uh, in the in the mid nineties, that kind of all coalesced yeah. when, when he coalesced by him winning his Academy Award in nineteen ninety five, and then uh, his, Nick Cage's action star. I guess he won his Academy Award, and then immediately after, he did The Rock and Con Air and Face Off within <laughs> like a year. Uh, and Snake Eyes were and honestly uh, City of Angels. I mean, even though it wasn't a great movie, like he's they're doing a Vim Vendors uh, adaptation, which like that's you know that's so yeah speak, yeah he's quote doing, unquote he's high doing, art. Yeah, he's doing he's doing he's doing serious movies. Uh, he's in Scorsese's Bring yeah, Bring Out, out the, the Dead, Dead, just like a year after that. He's doing like well-regarded action movies adaptation like in seconds oh yeah he just he absolutely just destroys the charlie kaufman role national treasure yeah which which is another movie that people like right and like people people like point out as as a good movie lord of war another movie that people really really like and then i would say yeah it, this is when the meme starts here's where the meme starts is the wicker man that he produced he he loved the original wicker man which is this really amazing Great movie. Uh, folk horror musical from the 70s and he decided he wanted to remake it for some reason so he produced and starred in the wicker man uh one of the worst movies ever made not uh, the bees yeah not the the not the bees scene is the beginning of the end of nick cage being taken seriously for a while and then after that it is just yeah ghost bad rider movie after bad movie knowing bad, bad movie knowing who's funny kick ass um, you know, Bad Lieutenant is a fun movie, like uh, Werner Herzog's uh, Bad oh, yeah. Lieutenant remake. But again, it, it's sort of like the, the the meme cage in that movie. You want to know a weird uh, one that I just saw randomly because I had a friend named Joe that wanted to watch this. And he was, this was kind of the seeds of what will become the current Nick Cage's Joe. Like he was actually really good in that. And I remember watching it being surprised, expecting it to be like a stupid Nick Cage where Nick Cage acts stupid, but like, it was closer to like what wound up being his performance in Pig, right? Yeah, um, and uh, he he just did straight to video schlock after straight to video schlock. He did the the second adaptation of the like the the Christian apocalypse thriller Left Behind, oh, right. which uh, famously has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> to this day, um, and just terrible movie after terrible movie. There's there's a couple hits in there here and there, like. He played like the basically the Batman role in Kick Ass in 2010, and that's that's a movie that people like. He did uh, a movie that is not critically acclaimed, but was a uh, a big hit for um, at the box office. A movie called The Crudes. Oh uh, yeah, 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 was, yeah. Was, I think I think uh, that still is the highest grossing Nicolas Cage movie. Really? Uh, yeah. More than National Treasure. Yep, that would have been my guess uh, if you had told me what's his highest grossing film. But anyway, uh, he he's, he just went direct-to-video, direct-to-video, bad movie, bad movie, bad movie. Really until Mandy. Uh, in 2017, he was in this movie that I really like called Mom and Dad, where he, he and Selma Blair play a mom and dad in a, a, a kind of an outbreak, end-of-the-world type of thriller where all of the parents on planet Earth decide, are, are just, be, you know, are overcome with an uncontrollable urge to murder their offspring. And he dials the cage up to an 11 in that movie. That's a really well-regarded movie. It's a fun movie. It's huh. a scary movie. Check that out. Um, came out just a few months before Mandy. In fact, I think he actually shot Mandy before Mom and Dad. Uh, but then uh, since Mandy, he's kind of, he's course-corrected a lot. 
And I think that probably culminated in Pig, uh, which I, th I think is uh, likely like, considered to be his best performance probably since he won his Oscar. Yeah, because now um, looking at post-Mandy, like, it was getting to the point where I was starting to pay attention if Nick Cage is in a movie and I would go see it. Like, you know, yeah. uh, you know Into the Spider-Verse, he's in that, and that was that was a good movie. Amazing movie, yeah. Um, I really I went to go see Color Out of Space. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also pretty schlocky, but still a lot of fun. Um, I, Prisoners of the Ghostland. I had a good time. Is it a great movie? Yeah. No. Willie's Wonderland. Also uh, not a great movie, but a very Wonderland's fun movie yeah. where Pig he doesn't speak. Uh, yeah. I, did you see the unbearable weight of massive talent? I loved it. Oh, so um, fun. Oddly enough. You know, I would I would say that Pedro Pascal is the standout performance oh, yeah. of that movie, and the reason the movie works so well. I mean, let's let's not start talking about Pedro Pascal because <laughs> stop. But I love him. He's my my internet daddy. Like he's your internet daddy, and everyone's internet daddy. But <laughs> yeah, um, I would say the whole thing kind of comes full circle with the unbearable weight of massive talent, where it leans into that Nick Cage as a meme and takes it back and does away with it. In my opinion. Yeah, because um, um, I mean, I'll, I'll be curious to see uh, currently that movie Renfield, which yeah. hasn't come out yet. Um, I'll be curious to see. This will be his first like kind of genre thriller movie that'll happen since The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Like, I'll say this is the first movie that it's like, oh, Nick Cage is going to be Nick Cage and he's going to cage it up. And I'm wondering what he's going to yeah. do in that movie. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's let's go back to Mandy because oh, yeah, yeah. I was fully expecting. So you know, five like viewing it five years later, I had always been under the assumption, an incorrect assumption, that this was a big Nick Cage star vehicle where he was going to go Gonzo crazy for two entire hours, and that was the draw of the movie. But in the movie itself, he is relegated all the way to the background, sometimes literally and out of focus in the background for the entire first hour of the movie where we get little to no character development for him. Uh, not no, we get, we get a small amount of character development for him and we really focus on Mandy and Jeremiah. And uh, to me, like think about the star power that Nicolas Cage has versus the budget of this movie or versus the pedigree of the director, well, the pedigree of the rest of the cast. That's what I'm going to say the stars aligned. Cause as we were saying, yeah. like this was Pre-Mandy, like right before Mandy comes out, I would say that was probably the low point of his career. That's like the bottom point in which the valley starts becoming a hill. Um, right. So like if there was ever a time to get Nick Cage to do a, a B, like a B movie, which are ostensibly is a B movie, this was the time. Right. But he he still even still he was a big actor. He was an Academy Award winner. Yeah, he's still actor. a name. He's a name that you can a, sell a, a movie big, on. A big name, a household name, an A-lister. Even if he his career like you know uh, critically was at a low point, um, he was still he's still a, a draw and a, from a commercial standpoint. And he he plays this character without ego. Like he. He, he is not the main character of the movie, really. Like, he is for maybe the second half. Like, he's at least the protagonist of the second half. Um, but just the way that he is relegated to the background, like, he's there out of focus during these long monologues that Mandy has. Uh, the one where uh, it's sort of like a riff on Silence of the Lambs and uh, Corey yeah, Starling talking, yeah, talking, about, talking about her dad killing the lambs. 
But uh, in this, it's her dad killing these starlings. Very on-the-nose reference. Um, but uh, I just loved how Nick Cage is in the background. His eyes are closed for a lot of it. Like, whenever he wants to make sure that we're paying attention to what Mandy is saying, he'll hmm. open his eyes. And uh, I want to know if that was that was the director who decided that he would open his eyes during those points of focus or if that was Nick Cage being a good acting partner. But in any case, like he, his performance in this movie does go Gonzo Nick Cage by the end, like we've already talked about, but the whole first hour, he is very, very much just supporting the other characters journeys and uh, not drawing any attention to himself. And even still, like even when he's going Gonzo, like it, and I think that that makes it affect better. Um, which I think you're leading into the question of like the two act structure that we're dealing with here because uh, Mandy doesn't die until an hour in, which is weird for a revenge thriller. It's a two hour movie and she's alive for half the movie. Uh, yeah. You only get the only, it's only the back half where he's starting to kick ass and take names. But I think it's that quiet setup and him being the background character first which then that makes his break so devastating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let, let's give a little context. So um, ah, yes. The, the vast, good. the vast majority of movies are written with a three act structure, where um, you can really point at uh, two distinct turning points that will kind of shift from the first to the second act and then to the second to the third act. And there's a climax in there and some falling action, but uh, very rarely do you see a movie where it's just broken into two perfect halves. Uh, Not, 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 it's not unheard of. It's not like exceptionally rare, but it is different than the uh, sort of unspoken formula of filmmaking. Especially uh, working in the U S too. Yeah, let, yeah. Let's let's also put that that asterisk on there. But this movie has just two distinct halves, where in the the first one is much slower paced. We get to know Mandy very well. We get to know Jeremiah very well. The movie puts them on this collision course with each other. It happens. He kills her in a in a really really gruesome way. And then from from there, the star of the show becomes Nick Cage. And for the second hour of the movie. It is him on this just blood-soaked, fast-paced, uh, you know, revenge where he's literally having like chainsaw duels and he's 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 uh, forging and wielding this this really crazy axe. He is ripping and, a mountain of cocaine. A yeah, mountain. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He like he just he, <laughs> yeah. He's like he takes a fistful of coke and shoves it up his nose. He takes their acid. It's just it goes crazy. Like kind of the poster promises you after like an hour and 10 minutes of movie, that's very, very slow paced, very um, serene in a lot of, yeah, lot of places, languid and uh, soft, you know, for, and me personally, I thought that the first half was the more kind of revolutionary, the most, mm. uh, the more daring part. And the second half for me kind of devolves into all right, so here's here's the revenge story that we thought we were going to get. Here's all the references to slasher movies. He literally like moves like Jason Voorhees in one of the worst Friday the Thirteenth movies uh, on purpose. Like he he uh, purposely uses some of the gestures that Jason does in that movie. It just they throw a bunch of references. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two Duel, just a ton of references. And for me, that's when the movie oddly loses steam. Is when the pace gets 
jacked up to a to an eleven, and all of the blood splatter happens. That's when the movie became less interesting for me. Now, personally. see, I'm thinking about this now. Like the thought just popped in my head um, about how, yeah, the second half then just starts becoming this parade of badass tropes, which they are indeed quite badass. Um, and and this is something that happens in some movies that are self-referential that I actually really appreciate. Actually, um, Haneke is great at this, where it's a movie that that pulls out all the things you're trying to expect. Like like you said, you see the poster from Mandy, you see the uh, the ad for Mandy, and you're expecting Nick Cage is gonna do some Nick Cage shit and go bananas, and he doesn't for the first hour. And uh, let's not pretend like Cosmatos and crew weren't aware of using Nick Cage in this way. So then the second half where it's just bonkers, the stuff that Nick Cage is doing on screen, it, it sort of like pokes and jabs. And he's like, this is what you came here for, right? This is what you wanted. Yeah. You wanted to see this, right? You wanted to see like gory over the top violence, right? That's what you wanted. You sick little, yes, sick little baby man. That's what you wanted. There you go. Eat it up. You like it? Tasty. Yum. Mm. Maybe you have some cheddar goblin mac and cheese afterward, you little. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, yeah. What is and it? I, I didn't like how it made me feel that way. <laughs> um, where some movies, that, I don't think this movie breaks a fourth wall like a Henneke film, but Hen uh, Henneke films definitely do that. Yeah, like, now would you like, say like, maybe like in, like, in, like in like in funny games where funny games um, they literally look at the screens like this is what you came here for they gotta die that's why you paid money for this ticket right. I gotta I'll literally and literally rewind the movie so it can happen the way that you came for so you yeah. sick freak yeah uh, um, no do you, I don't think Mandy is quite I'm sorry ask your question oh yeah I was gonna say like do you think the movie's doing that or because um, mm. I got no. in asking the question I would lean towards not really because. No, it's too the fun. way Henneke films, his camera's really cruel. Yeah, um, he's his. It's not fun. Like, there's no sense of adventure where, in a Nick in Cage a decapitates a man, sets, sets his head on fire, and smokes a cigarette off the flaming skull. Hell yeah! yeah. I mean, he pulls out a chainsaw to fight a guy who then pulls out a, a chainsaw that's comically long. Like like the blade <laughs> of the chainsaw is like five feet long. Yeah. And it's a funny moment and they have a, a badass chainsaw duel oh. like in Texas Chainsaw 2. Like, Can we no, talk this, this... about dicks in this movie? There is Freud oh, yeah. would have a field day with this yeah, one. The, yeah, the chainsaw certainly. The chainsaws. He kills one of the cult members by shoving his big phallic axe down someone's throat, and it sprays on his face. Yeah. Um, when Jeremiah Sand dies, like Nick Cage's face, he's just going, oh, as he's yeah. blowing up his face Mo while he's kneeled down in front of him. Like, come on. Mo yeah, mo moments after saying he'll suck his dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is, uh, this movie loves sex and death. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it loves taking down masculinity, like like we've talked about, like we talked about, you know, American Psycho does that '80s masculinity, where it's like, gimme, 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 greed is good culture, and you know, damned, damned the other guy, damned future generations. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously, this movie is a kind of a takedown of machismo. Well, to in go its back way, to right? my point about how this is 2018, looking at the '80s, I mean, we're not over this. This is not a takedown of the '80s. This is a takedown of today. Right. But but the difference is this movie's fun. Like like yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. there is I think there is some of that 
some of some of that subtext, some of that social awareness. But I think at the end of the day, like the movies that he's referencing, like Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, The New Blood, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, uh, The Ghoulies, like the the Cheddar Goblin is clearly the Ghoulies, and you know, it's like movies that are just pure camp. And he's reveling in it, and this movie does camp just as well. Like, there's a sense of adventure and a sense of fun that this movie has. Yeah, this movie loves just, the references. It doesn't hate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he's literally just, you know, geeking out with us, and 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 it's fun. Like, I mean, like, I I, I don't think that the second half really truly revels in the thematic subtext the way that the first half does, and and that's fine. Like. I, I thought that the first half was kind of more daring because of that. And mm. I thought the the juxtaposition of the very, uh, you know, the saturated colors and like the the big pulsing lights and the psychedelia and the, you know, the big brooding synthy score by, you know, uh, Johansson, rest in peace. It's one of his last movies or might've been the very last. I movie looked at the done. other movies I did soundtracks um, for. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. Arrival and, yeah, I mean, he was basically like Villeneuve's like soundtrack guy after oh, a while man. there. Yeah, uh, it's really really sad. He died really young, I think, in his forties. Um, I think tragically, I think it was like an overdose or something. Tragically, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, seems like he had some some issues or mental health problems, and he he overdosed. But um, uh, yeah, what I, what I'm saying is like the first movie is just totally a wash in the aesthetic. Uh, it, it's a strange juxtaposition where you have this very over-the-top aesthetic style, but but the movie is is a really slow-moving character character study, and I loved it. Like I thought, I was I was like so hypnotized by it that when the turn happened and it, I, I got the movie that I came for, I was a little underwhelmed by comparison. Now, look, I still I still think this movie is like a four and a half stars out of five. Like really, I do. Like I, I would, or like you know, maybe four, maybe four out of five. But uh, the first half for me is like so much better than the second half. But taken all together, it, it's 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 doesn't have to be perfect. Like if this movie was perfect, it wouldn't be as uh, as liberating as it is. Yeah, it that... almost needs that like excessive nature about it. Where it's yeah, like, and you know, Nick Cage's everything from Nick Cage's performance to the color grading yeah. to the way the music works. Like it's all purposely going beyond. Yeah. Uh, this is a luxurious movie. Yeah. Like, and, but and not I like indulgent. that. Like, no, it, no, it's luxurious without being indulgent. Like where, truly. and I could understand like, where someone watches this and thinks it's self-indulgent, but like, I just didn't get that. Right. But you know, uh, Cosmatos himself says that he, he's not aiming for perfection. He like talks about, uh, this analysis paralysis that mm, some artists mm. have where they they're they're just slaves to perfection he, he refers to it as the tyranny of perfection and uh what i was what i was thinking is like you know M mandy is is great i really love all the different pieces i like it does they don't work in concert for me perfectly every time but what the movie is is like you don't even want to compare it to perfection because it's so utterly in its own lane that like what would perfect even mean by this movie's terms yeah like, and it's this like, movie's not playing by my rules you i would i'll compare this to like a movie movies from the 80s where it's like where you i don't know like the brat pack and people that just have like what you could say like a uh, like almost surgical control of their uh capabilities so like spielberg's george lucas people like them um where in there and that's kind of the thing that um i kind of i get 
I've run into a wall with Spielberg is he's too good. Like he's too perfect at his control. So they are at his control of the camera in every aspect of the film that he's making. And it's so technically masterful that it almost ren renders the film a little sterile, kind of lifeless. Yeah. Like this movie is the opposite where like the, the, the like really in your face, uh, you know, saturated colors and, the like the the way even the way that like characters faces are in focus or not like there's there's scenes where it's like you can barely see one character's face the other character's face you can see too much of but like you it, it doesn't go with kind of like who's speaking yeah right it's not you're not seeing like the person who's speaking in like the best focus every time and it's kind of neat looking like where, it, where there's it, some it, directors it drew me in more yeah there, there's some directors that uh if you ask them about you could ask them the most minute choice about like why did the character have their shoelaces that color and they can tell you why they thought about that where i don't think cosmatos is working on that level i don't think he's not he's not concerned at that level and i think that's good yeah yeah i mean like he still is building the world in his own just peculiar way and it's awesome because of that. Like this, this movie just kicks ass. It really does. <laughs> um, I have a question. Uh, here's something that I, that I was surprised to learn. So, <laughs> Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy mm -hmm. both have like a really, really specific like cosmic horror bent. Right. To them. Yeah. Have you seen Beyond the Black Rainbow? I forget. I I, I don't, but I, I know enough about it. I've seen enough about it that I know that it, it's known as as uh, well. And the title of it is very cosmic horror. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And Mandy, obviously, it, like even if the it, it it isn't really a cosmic horror movie itself, but it's still very like yeah. much in the aesthetics. Hell, of Beyond it the Black like, Rainbow sounds like a book Mandy would be reading. Yeah, it sounds like an H.P. Lovecraft book. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. When I saw, heard the title, I was like, "Is that literally like a? Is this like a Lovecraft adaptation?" And it's not. So uh, I was pretty surprised to learn that uh, Panos Cosmatos is the name that the man was born with. <laughs> Like I thought it was just like a like a uh, I thought it was a you know pen name because it does kind of like fit sort of with the movies he's making like Cos Cosmos right? oh like, yeah yeah like, yeah like but no that's just his name his his dad was also a Cosmatos and you know uh, I would say probably like a little like still a little bit more of a noteworthy director than than Panos is so far uh, his dad directed Tombstone in the early nineties which. Mm -hmm. Panos had a uh, uh, he he worked on the crew. He like did some like kind of second unit stuff or something like that. Do you was, think like, Cosmatos child? Do you think Cosmatos will get a big budget at some point? And do you think that would be a good thing? I don't know. I don't think he needs it. I mean, let's like let's let's take a look at what Mandy costs because whatever it costs, it looks like it costs more. Oh yeah, because there are. Um, I would say the biggest. Uh, what's the word? Culprit for more money did not help their movies. Zaranovsky, where I love his yeah. early work, where he didn't have a budget, and then the moment he could do whatever he wanted, it kind of got off the rails. Um, so I yeah. wonder if someone like Matos. I don't think he needs it. Mandy costs six million dollars, and man, it looks like it cost a lot more. Yeah, uh, like you know, let's like let's let's kind of tie back to last week, and we talked a little bit about mm -hmm. how Knock at the Cabin kind of similarly, not a big budget. Looks like it. The the effects really stretch the budget around the really big concept, uh, and you know uh, the the early really noteworthy M Night Shyamalan movies, not high budget movies, 
And then he started doing these high budget like adaptations of really popular IP and both of his like hundred million plus movies were his worst movies. Yeah. Like uh no, he like he like some directors they don't need the ball and chain of more money. Because more money doesn't like more money, typically there's just a, a direct correlation between more money and less control, right? And uh I don't think uh the M. Night Shyamalans of the world or the the Panos Cosmatoses of the world are gonna play well with a big budget that so, has strings attached. That's interesting that you talk about budget too, um, is because uh, one of the producers, notably, is Elijah Wood. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I, I remember I was listening to an interview where he uh, that got brought up, and he said like he actually spent a lot of time shopping around for a producer and and went with Elijah Wood very specifically because yeah, if you look into Elijah Wood's uh, work on what he produced on, like he loves his freaky shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he gives movie, those directors a lot of leeway on yeah. you know the money that he invests in them. Yeah, I mean, the Greasy Strangler was like kind of right before uh, Mandy. Uh, not not freaky, but just a very good uh, kind of singularly uh, unique yeah. movie. Like a I girl mean, walks girl home walks home, home at, at night. At yeah. night is awesome. Color yeah. out of space. Um, yeah, these are all yeah. very yeah, distinct keep, films. Yeah, he did just keep his keep his uh, his partnership going with Cage for Color Out of Space with another another cosmic horror movie. Uh, right, like pretty soon after Mandy, didn't he? And then in between that, I think also Daniel isn't real, which is another uh, violent trauma-filled movie with some uh, larger-than-life or, or, or cosmic undertones as well. Yeah, I mean Elijah Wood having uh, his own aesthetic as a producer is an int- is it's interesting. It's really cool that he's used his he's, his yeah, proto money he's in among this way. My favorite people in Hollywood that uh, made all their money with a huge franchise and then just went off and did their own yeah. weird stuff that they like. Yeah, him, him, and uh, Robert Pattinson's the king of that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, but also their uh, their contemporary uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe also might, might Swiss be Army the, Man might be the might be the most. Uh, noteworthy example of all the Potter <laughs> kids doing crazy shit. Yeah. Um, oh, but back to Knock of the Cabin, because, um, yeah, but a, a regular staple we're going to try and uh, uh, work into this is comparing our current movie that we're talking about to the movie we talked about the previous week to uh, varying levels of success. Uh, this one actually is quite easy because there are some similar uh, surface level bones that they share, one of them being Death Cults. And uh, thing or and things that are beyond our comprehension. Yeah. So, uh, which movie had the more successful cult? So, I think what's interesting is that these cults are entirely different in the two well, films. I, 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 so it's not a cult in Knock at the Cabin. No, like, no. The, we, the we have some reason to believe that they are at the beginning, but we pretty quickly learned that they're not the the uh, yeah how how do we want to put these two groups in the same uh same term like the the doomsayers no because like this other cult isn't really mandy's cult isn't really talking about the end of the world just the enlightened i don't know they're like people who think that they have enlightenment would be the easiest analog i guess to connect them yeah um 
Well, okay, so like they're, I mean, they're they're both about the. It's not like a cult of personality the way it is with Jeremiah and right. his. What is it? Children of the New Dawn or Children of the New Dawn? Yeah, Children of the New Dawn. I mean, they want to be in a cult. They're reveling in being in a cult. They're they're. Uh, their, their hedonism is is at the fore, right? And they're using their their you know big personality Jeremiah to revel in being, uh you know being on the wrong side of hedonism. The folks in Knock at the Cabin, they're just a means to an end. Like they're they're trying to they're trying to work on something bigger than themselves. Like if anything, there's a, they have a, a closer analog to the the folks in Knock at the Cabin would be Nicholas Cage's character and Mandy in yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah, actually, and uh, what's his name? The the skeptic from Knock at the Cabin would probably be more prone to. No, that's an unfair statement. He would not be in the the Jesus Free Cult. That's mean. Um, no, probably no, not. that wouldn't work all too well. Yeah, yeah, I would say yeah. It only goes the other way where Red would fit in. Much better as one of the uh, the the doomsayers in Knock at the Cabin, because um, they they exist essentially as mediums. Yeah, they're pretty much mediums. They're not even cult members. Yeah, they're. I mean, they they don't want to be there. They're not. They don't have like a leader. I guess Dave Bautista is their de facto leader. But no, I mean, I I, I mean, I see that that similarity where they both are you know kind of propping up something that's unknowable and they have to try to get us to know it well not necessarily unknowable because nothing in uh mandy happens is necessarily unknowable except for the very final scene where you've got the two moons and all that stuff um but i would say it's incomprehensible what happened for red yeah um like even though you know on the physical plane, like it's everything happens, and you can clearly explain, like, well, this led to this, led to this, led to this. Like the the uh, the, the emotional uh, response to it is incomprehensible. Sure, yeah, uh, and you know, oddly enough, the the novel Knock at the Cabin explores that a little bit more as it pertains to like the dad's relationship with the cult because their child dies in front of them gruesomely in the novel and they have to reckon with that in addition to everything they're reckoning with in the in the movie there's not a lot of shared dna here i mean (laughs) surface level there's cult like apparati uh not 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 similar movies uh at all yeah it is Um, i mean it's an example of using a modest budget to for big punch or for a big punch well and yeah, using a mod- mod- modest budget and a big concept, uh, and you know, directors who are true auteurs that have a point of view and share it with us. And you could uh, say both with, of them un- feature un- an uncompromising point of view. Both of them feature an actor that had a very uh, well-established persona that was challenged in this movie: Dave Bautista, Knock the Cabin, Nick Cage, and Mandy. Uh, I disagree there. I think. Dave Batista is pretty much just playing to type in Knock Well, I'm Cabin. saying people who like, you know, most people who, let, let's just say that this was marketed as a Dave Batista vehicle, um, they would expect him being Drax or being like the big slugger or the heavy or something like that. He was not doing that. For general audiences, at least. Yeah, I guess if they weren't familiar with his filmography. Um, all right, so Mandy? Good movie. Oh, Manny, great movie. Um, great movie. I I think I'll give it a good nine out of ten. Um, 
in order for me to give something a 10, it's got to almost fundamentally alter me. But yeah, this, this yeah. gets about all the way up there without actually uh, changing my DNA. <laughs> got it. So uh, let's each uh, pick one movie that we'll recommend mm. based on our uh, you know, enjoyment of Mandy. If you enjoyed Mandy, what would you recommend either, either as a comparison or as a contrast? So I'm going to go with the contrast and I'm going to pick a movie that's so quintessentially 80s and was act, and I would say now in uh, retrospect is part of the sort of 80s talking to themselves about what they are. And that's Predator. Um, <laughs> and what Predator does really well is first off, kind of like, man, it's just a lot of fun. It's, you know... Every, like you got the biggest, shiniest, greasiest, muscliest men doing the most badass stuff on the planet. Um, but it's it, and but what the movie does is it presents this in a very grounded way about like this is how you know your your uh, this is how our, our our boys are out there protecting our freedoms and all that stuff against well not predators but like you know the general threats against us and th these are our American heroes uh, all biceped out and and uh just mowing people down and saying badass lines um but it's it's a fantasy like it's not real um that's not <laughs> what the u.s was actually doing in the 80s and that's not to say that we were the pure good guys in the 80s is a dubious claim at most so it's it's basically blatant propaganda that we're trying to tell ourselves that our position in the world and our interventions across the globe are all well-intended and innocent and actually our guys are uh all of our guys are Arnold Schwarzenegger and super cool. And the thing is, it is super cool. They're they're awesome. Um, and you want to be like them. Uh, and that's, I think, that exact kind of imagined 80s. I would say, yeah, an imagined 80s is what Predator does. And Mandy gives us another imagination or another interpretation of what the 80s imagined could be, which I would argue is even though the the aesthetics of Mandy are completely divorced from reality, speak to a much more emotional truth of what the 80s were like. So coincidence or not that um, Predator incubated not one, but two careers of future United States governors? <laughs> yeah, honestly, uh, I would say not a coincidence. Um, They're both really centrist politically though like jesse ventura was neither a republican nor a democrat he was literally like a reform party yeah. guy or like an independent guy and and i think i, I think schwarzenegger was a republican he was but technically schwarzenegger GOP, yeah. Is a, yeah pretty pretty progressive as far as republicans go but yeah it's interesting like when you thought of that i was like oh that movie has jesse ventura and arnold schwarzenegger in it and they, they were soon to be governors both yeah, I mean, they're considered American heroes, and let's not pretend like their portrayal on yeah. the screen and the kind of characters that they... Yeah, they, no, that got them votes. That got yeah, them votes. Totally helped. I mean, Reagan was an actor, too. Oh, wow, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, of course <laughs> he was. Uh, wow. Got to chew on that. Uh, we, we don't have a great track record of, like, entertainment personality-turned-politicians, <laughs> turned do we? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, an on-the-nose recommendation. It's a movie that I've uh, mentioned twice so far, but if uh, but uh, it has a wonderful physical performance in it by stuntman turned uh, masked psychopath Kane Hodder. And uh, the movie is a movie that uh, Nicolas Cage studied 
uh, in preparation for Mandy. And oh. the movie is called Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. And uh, Nick Cage takes his entire kind of physical being in the second half of this movie. It is based on the work that Kane Hodder did as Jason Voorhees in that movie. Uh, down to some very specific movements, very specific uh, facial mannerisms even, uh, which is odd for Jason, but he does spend some of the movie without a mask. And uh, the the movie's real bad. Uh, the, the concept is what if you took Carrie from Carrie, so like a troubled religious fanatic, uh, you know, telekinetic teenager and put her against Jason. So the movie's basically Jason versus Carrie. It's a bad idea. It's a bad movie. <laughs> but it features the best Jason. So Kane Hodder was Jason in Friday the 13th, part 7, 8, 9, and 10. Those are probably the four worst Friday the 13th movies, but they feature the best Jason and the Jason that uh, most people... Most people associate the physicality of Jason with Kane Hodder's how, performance. How many franchises get to have four worst movies? Yeah, I mean, those are the four worst of a, a movie, of a franchise with, with, I think, zero movies that are considered uh, fresh on the tomato meter. <laughs> um, uh, but I love them. Uh, apparently, uh, Panos uh, Cosmatos loved it enough to give it to Jason, or to to Jason, to, to Nicolas Cage and say, this is the character that you're playing in the second half of my movie study. Oh, man. This Nick Cage was a slasher. Oh. Well, I mean, we we, uh, we just spent an hour and a half talking about it. Yep. Yeah, he is. I mean, you know, he, he is he is doing a facsimile of Jason in that movie, in this movie. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yeah, you should you should watch it, Dan, and let me know what you think. Yeah, that's my, that's my recommendation. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan, and uh, yeah, uh, don't take uh, don't take STR drugs until you get your mind right, kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk to your therapist before uh, taking psychedelics. I uh, took a, a big overdose of psilocybin in uh, 2009, and I'm still not convinced that this all hasn't been a dream ever since. See you later. <laughs> Through everything, the light is true.
the lessons learned, this song of you and me.